Good evening, everyone. So, on Wednesday, it was Ash Wednesday, and we began our series called Homecoming. This is a Lent series, and it's to honor this Lenten season, and I'm sure we come from different faith traditions with different understandings of Lent and all of that, but what historically Lent has offered the church is an annual opportunity to allow our hearts and our minds to be reoriented around the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So in that sense, it's a really great pause, reset, reminder. So we've been, this year we're calling our Lent series Homecoming. Now, when I hear that word homecoming, I, my mind goes back to the, the small town that I grew up in, uh, where homecoming, and specifically high school homecoming football game and homecoming dance, uh, were a huge deal in our town. Like, huge. Uh, it was the opportunity for like the entire town to shut down and to come out for the parade down Main Street. Uh, and it was like, uh, it was huge. And so every, all the different uh, graduating classes would build a different float and the football team and all the other sporting teams would be on on caravans and kind of go like sitting on hay bales because my small town did that kind of stuff. And we would go through the, the city. And even as a kid, like we would like the entire uh, middle school and elementary school would be dismissed and their teachers would take us all to go watch the parade. It was, it was a really big deal in our town. And then at night, the game would start and people would return back to their old high school for our varsity football game. And they would bust out old season Leatherman jackets. They would begin to hang out and meet up with old friends. And it was like a high school school reunion that happened every single year where 50 different graduating classes all descended at the same time into this space. And they all returned because there was something special, apparently, about that season of their life, something that they wanted to draw back on. There was something about that hometown pride that they felt. There was something that transcended just like going to a football game, right? Uh, which was a really good thing because our football team was notoriously inconsistent. So you never knew if we were actually going to win, even if it was a good against bad team, no clue. So it's good that that's not where they put their hope for the night. And so when we think of homecoming, our natural first thought is of returning someplace familiar, home, safe, comforting. Now, you might feel like you go home every time you go to Magic Kingdom, or for me as a Californian kid, it's Disneyland. It feels like home. Uh, maybe it's when you're, when you've been gone for a while and then you get to cut and then you go back to your house, wherever you live. And, and you're just like, oh, it's so good to be home, like homecoming. Maybe it's your parents' home or even your home state whenever you go back home for a visit. Now, all of these different homes have two things in common where you have to somehow make the journey to them. So you get in your car or a plane or whatever to get to the home environment. So that's one aspect. And the other thing is they're all temporary realities. Now, it's not, it doesn't mean they're bad. They're often, it's good. They're, they're good places to go. They, they bring up sweet memories, reminiscing, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, they're temporary. They don't last. So that begs the question, what if we were made for a home that was actually meant to last for forever. But yet that home on our own, we are incapable of making the journey. 
And so this is what we're going into over the course of this Lent series. Over these next seven weeks, we're going to be examining a consistent theme in the scriptures. The reality that God brings home to humanity when we are incapable of returning to home on our own. When I was in middle school, I, uh, I was working on my epic front flips off of my bed in my bedroom because I was indestructible, you see. And now don't, don't get like impressed and go, wow, Danny did front flips. I didn't land on my feet. I typically landed on my tailbone, but it, it, I didn't get hurt doing that. So that's not what this story is about right now. And I would do it over and over and over again. And, and as I was doing over and over and over again, um, I, I did that because again, I was indestructible. The only problem was my wall wasn't. And so I did one flip too many and the heel of my foot went right into the wall and just lodged there. And so I did the only thing that made sense. I told my parents, no, I didn't tell my parents. I, I put a poster up on the wall to cover it. Then some time went by. Uh, I don't know how much time, months, a year, I don't know. But I was playing a video game in my room and here's the problem with that. Uh, I, was, I, I was decent at most video games and I've never been good at any one of them. Like I could kind of hold my own, but I never won, right? That's why I didn't do online gaming because I, I would be in like the noobs bracket, you know, like it wouldn't have gone very well for me. And so one particular day I am losing at a video game and I'm really frustrated. My frustration mounts and I take my game controller and I chuck it at the wall and right up past the last hole to the left, my controller was right through the poster. So I learned my lesson that day that I needed to reorganize the furniture in my room to cover up that hole too. And so I reorganized my furniture like the entire thing before my parents got home and moved my dresser there in front of the holes. And there they, th- that dresser stayed and my, and my transgressions went unnoticed until just a few years ago when my mom got the entire house repainted. <laughs> and, the, and the painters were kind enough to fix the holes from my handiwork. Hiding. Hiding comes so natural to us humans, right? Well, we hide the evidence of whatever we don't want discovered. But behind every attempt to hide is an attempt to hide a piece of ourselves along with it. Shame, guilt, the pain. And we think we can hide not just the evidence, but the part of us that we don't want anyone, including God, to ever discover. So piece by piece, out of shame, out of a fear of rejection, out of guilt, to hide the evidence of our failures. Along with it, we hide piece by piece parts of our story that remain in the dark, that remain hidden until there is very little left that is truly you or me and we become a facade. The reality is, is for a while we can hide from one another and we can see how that goes. My experience is it never lasts nearly as long as you think. But can we truly hide from God? 
can we outrun or hide from his presence? And so to answer this, let's begin at the beginning of beginnings. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and was void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. So these are the first words that we discover in the scriptures. And what we discover is much about God and much about the world in which humanity would soon inhabit. And we see God's creative power on display in the very beginning. We discover in the pre-created state of existence. It is formless. It's chaotic. It's a wasteland. There is no life. But even in this state, look who's there on the scene. It says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of of the waters. Now, this hovering, it isn't like a UFO or a drone that's kind of just kind of chilling there in place, lifeless, unattached, observing. The, the image from the Hebrew word that's used for gliding here is the gliding presence like a bird over the cosmic chaotic waters, even before anything good has ever been called. God is present even there. He is present before everything else. And so then the story continues in Genesis chapter 1 that in the six days of creation, God speaks and order and life and flourishing take off through the cosmos. And he crafts, he crafts things in the heavens and things on the earth. Now, the earth, we're pretty familiar with that place. It's where we spend most of our time. Uh, it's, it's this thing, this planet. And then he uses that word heavens here. Now, the heavens doesn't mean heaven. It means heavens, as in the sky and everything past the sky. So that includes planets, stars, the everything in the galaxy, everything in our quadrant, everything throughout the cosmos, everything else. So God created our globe, and he created everything else. And then, and he fills both with wondrous creative works by the sheer power of his voice. Isn't that insane? And with each day, the heavens and the earth are changing drastically. And God is present in the midst of it all. And then on the sixth day, he crafts a unique creation. A unique creation unfolds uh, verse 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image. The Hebrew word here for man is the word Adam. And that word literally translates into humanity or mankind. So let us make humanity in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, humanity, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see here something different, something unique in Genesis 2. It, it tells the same story from a slightly different angle by giving more specifics in, in how this played out in the narrative. That God doesn't just speak humanity into existence. He crafts him. He takes, he takes the mud and out of the dust, he forms the human and then breathes his very life into the human. And then when the human is created, he tells the human to go and to name and name and all the different animals and to find a suitable helpmate, somebody to come alongside him, somebody who would bear the image of God with him, but he finds none. And so then God puts the man under sleep. And in that space, he takes part of the man out and forms that into another creature. And then when she wakes up and he wakes up and, he, and the man, the man sees the woman, he says, bone my bone, flesh my flesh. He gets poetic because it's beautiful. He says, finally, I found the one who's like me, the one who bears the image of God like me, the one who, who comes alongside and we partner together. Finally, this is good stuff. Now, what's the benefit of a photo versus like, let's say, a sketch or a painting? Well, a photo provides the most accurate depiction of a person or a thing, right? Unless you're using like Snapchat filters or um, Photoshop, right? Then it becomes like kissy lips and other things, right? See, this was why at the beginning of photography in the 19th century, it was such a big deal. Because you could actually not just see yourself in a mirror. A picture, a portrait could be taken or a, a, a landscape of Yosemite or the Eiffel Tower or something could be taken and its exact likeness could be framed and hung on a wall and you could see that thing and what it looked like, albeit in black and white and not with the greatest focus, right? But it was that thing. And so when you see a photo of you, it bears an image of you, right? Now in the ancient world, all major belief systems outside of Israel believed that 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 there were those individuals who bore the image of the gods. And it was the kings, the rulers, specifically in the example of the Egyptians, it was Pharaoh. In essence, these were the superheroes who were meant to represent the gods to the world. If you wanted to know what the gods were like, you looked to Pharaoh or to an emperor or to a king. That's how you knew what they were like. And so when you saw them robed in ornate jewelry and clothing, you knew what the gods were like. When they were oppressive and vindictive, you knew what the gods were like. They bore the image of the gods. But the Hebrew scriptures offer a very different picture. You see, in this, in this passage, we don't see the image of God, the creator God, as a select, powerful individual or individuals. 
It's not one particular, particular ethnic group. It's not just men. It's not just women. What does it say? It says that all of humanity, male and female, he created them to bear his image. Both male and female were created and crafted to complement one another in bearing God's image together. Neither is superior to the other in play. Both are meant to complement and to partner together, to co-rule, to co-image God. Isn't that beautiful? Created in a way that if you ask the question, do you want to see what Yahweh, the creator God, is like? The answer was meant to be, look at humanity. Not that we would ever be gods. Not that we would... Uh, that, that if you look at what Adam and Eve looked like, that you're like, oh, that's, that is the corporeal being of what God looked like now. It was that you would understand the essence, the character, the nature of God. See, humanity was meant to live in love, harmony, care, compassion, creativity, diligence in working, protecting and stewarding. Not to show off that humanity is so awesome, but to serve as a signpost pointing to the one whose image they bore. And then what's so cool is then it talks about the fruitful multiplication, that the the humans are now supposed to come together, though out of the one flesh comes two, and then they join together. And in the joining together, there is the procreative aspect of this, in which case children would be born and raised up to bear the image In essence, God's presence was meant to be displayed through his image bearers as they populated the globe. And so we see in Genesis 2 that this this partnership that God desires to have with humanity, inviting humans to co-rule with him, to enjoy relationship with him. I love the way the Westminster Catechism says it, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Isn't that beautiful? And then it talks in the scriptures that they were naked and unashamed, meaning that they had nothing to hide from God or from one another. All this to say humanity was crafted by God to give us true purpose, true delight, and true relationship with him. No filters, just the real thing. Does that seem idealistic? Does that seem far from our reality? The answer is yes. We're all wearing clothes. And like, like the, yes, this isn't what our life is like. Something went wrong. And if you're familiar with the story, then you know where it goes next. It's the tell of the two trees. And so in Genesis chapter two, we discover, we discover the first tree, which is the tree of life, the tree of God's own life. And then in verse 16, We discover when God spoke to the man and the Lord God commanded to the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so we have two trees displaying two opposing choices. One represents God's own life, trusting God's desires, enjoying relationship with him, trusting that there is no life apart from him. In other words, being at home with God. 
It's the decision to stay home, to enjoy that. But the second tree represented the knowledge of good and evil. See, this tree represented an opportunity to choose an attempt at life and knowledge and understanding without the creator God present in the picture. Now, does this ever bother you? Has this ever struck you as a test? Have you ever, like, like I have in the past, stayed awake thinking over this, going, like, God, why was that tree there in the first place? And don't even get me started about that whole serpent character. Like, just chuck that thing out. Now, here's the thing. It was a test. It was a test. It was a test of true love and faith. And now, if you have difficult reconciling these realities, I totally get it. I totally get where that comes from. But what I have found helpful is understanding the motives of the one presenting the test. See, tests aren't bad. They can help grow you. They can help unearth realities about you. They give opportunity. And see, in this, we don't get the image that God's motives in the test were for anything, for humanity to just watch them fall or to point them towards failure, but to give them the opportunity to choose home with him, his presence, or to choose their own way, to take their inheritance of his breath, his image, and make off from them, to run away from home. And so the woman and then the man give into the serpent's temptation and the image of God born through all of humanity becomes fractured. Now, what do you envision God experienced in this moment? Anger? Disgust? Like he's just ready to go, oh, I knew I shouldn't have created those humans. Oh, I, that was an accident. Let's see, how they, let's see how I respond. Well, let's read the rest of the story starting on Genesis chapter three, starting verse eight. We'll go from there. So right before this, the man and the woman have now realized their nakedness. And so they sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. In other words, they began hiding from one another. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And then he punted. He shifted the blame. And then the Lord God said to the woman, who is this that you, what is this that you have done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. It wasn't me. Pass the blame along. Reminds me in the movie Brave, uh, Merida, she has this line that she says throughout it that I think is so important understanding that film. And, and she says, it's not my fault. Like everything, it's not my fault. And she just keeps shifting the blame, shift the blame, shift the blame. 
And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you and pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The word Eve in Hebrew literally means life. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat. And live forever. Therefore, God, the Lord God sent him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now there's a lot there. But this reminds me of how much I hated disappointing my parents as a kid. The only problem was that I was really good at making dumb decisions as a kid as well. Throwing game controllers through the wall, doing front flips, hole in the wall. Those are just like, like the tip of the iceberg on how dumb I was. So I learned the only the reasonable thing to do. Hide. Hide. Sometimes it was hiding my room until I hoped I forgot my poor choices. Sometimes it was hiding the evidence of poor choices um, from their view in school stuff, at home, on the internet. Hiding seen like a natural human response. And I wish that I'm like, yeah, and then, and then I became an adult and then I stopped hiding stuff. But the reality is that's just not the true. Fear of rejection, fear of being discovered, fearing of what happens if the truth gets out. It's terrifying. And so we view hiding as somehow a natural response, a natural course of action. And we, because we hide from that, which we are afraid of, right? For example, if, if, if there's a bear wandering through the woods, like the natural, like hiding might be a good response, right? Doing whatever you can to kind of get away. But here we discover the first shameful hiding in the history of the world. And we realize that there is nothing natural about it. We weren't made to hide. Now, a thing is only natural when it is functioning according to its purpose. Fair? For example, it isn't natural for a manatee to climb a tree. 
right? So if you see a manatee in a tree, you assume something went wrong somewhere, right? We were made to live in shame. We weren't made to cover ourselves, to hide from one another, not advocating for nudism. We're not meant to hide in the thorny bushes to avoid God's presence. We're not made to live a life marked by fear of being found out. It's not what we're made for. See, in this story, at this point in the story, there is only one natural thing that happens here. And it's what God does. And it's where he's at. He pursues and is present with humanity in the midst of the darkness. This is who he is. When we abandon home, he brings home to us. He seeks us out and attempts to find us. And even in his divine justice, that part of the passage where you're like, oh, I really wish that wasn't in the Bible, which is absolutely feels like a gut punch, right? We still discover God's presence. Justice is a good thing. That what is wrong is made right. That is a good thing. And he declares that parts of humanity's created purpose as image bearers those now realities are also fractured because of it as an outward expression of an inward fracturing that's already occurred. So he says that for the man, that the work of his hands are going to become difficult. He says that for the woman, the, the work of childbearing, future image bears, is now going to be difficult. The relational dynamic between the complementing aspects of image bears even that is going to warp like putting a plastic bowl into a microwave. So the image that we get here is that none of this is as it was supposed to be. The image of God, his presence through his special creation no longer can accurately represent him. It's as if, is if you put a picture on the, like a family portrait of us on the wall and then, and then we gave some, some pain to Asher and Abby and gave them five minutes with it. They, they're my two and five-year-old. If, if they had five minutes with it, we're not looking the same, right? Like they will paint and do all kinds of things to the painting and the wall. And that's what humanity has done. Now, if this is where the story ends, this is awful. But God... He is consistently present in the midst of a fractured world, even bringing in hope where it seems like there is no reason to believe that it could possibly come. Remembering, remember, I mean, just remember the promise of future judgment to the serpent. He says, first thing he says, that one day there will be a snake crusher who is going to come and you might try to take him out by bruising his heel and he will strike you down. In other words, this serpent, this spiritual enemy, he doesn't win in the story. Even when it feels like he's winning in our story, he doesn't win in the story. Doesn't have it in it. He doesn't know how to win. He's really bad at winning. The Bible's filled with that story. His story ends with a complete defeat. Evil will not always win. That's important, though. The second thing, it comes from Verse 21, let's reread it. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. 
the image we get here is not of the humanity getting to continue wearing their fig leaves, their, their patched approach at covering their shame. Now, isn't it kind of odd to read this and go, well, if, that's, if that was a bad thing that they did in covering themselves, then why is God participating in it? He's meeting them right where they're at. And what's so important to note about this is that, is that the first shedding of blood is not a ritual sacrifice for God. It is not humanity trying to make their way back to him, trying to make it right to him. It's of God being so present with his creation that the first blood spilt in the scriptures. It wasn't us doing it. It was the creator God spilling the blood of another creature to provide coverings for us human beings. That should break us. He broke one of the things that he created because the other thing that he created broke themselves. <laughs> and so both of these realities, what these should whisper to us is that the story doesn't end here. They are simply whispers of what God is going to accomplish through Jesus, that the snake crusher who would be born of a daughter of Eve would come to usher in the kingdom of heaven into a world of darkness, defeating Satan by allowing his own blood to be spilled on the cross. It wasn't by our sacrifices for God, it was by his sacrifice for us. Restoring the fractured image bearers to once again experience true purpose, true delight, and true relationship with them. In the garden, heaven and earth were together. God's presence with his creation in perfect harmony. And our rebellion caused a rift, a division, a schism in those realities. And Jesus has come to usher in the kingdom of heaven, bringing the kingdom of heaven to us so that we don't go home. Home comes to us. And one day, the new Jerusalem will come from the new heavens and or collide with the new earth. And in that moment, all the brokenness, all the evil, all the wickedness, all the tears and anxiety, disease and chaos, all of it, it's undone. Nothing's left. Because, not because we made our way to God, but because he's made his way to us and he invited us back in on the journey. He doesn't leave us. In the middle of his divine justice, he made a way for grace and mercy. See, the Bible is not a story of us returning to God. Are you starting to see this? It is a consistent story of God consistently bringing home back to us that we humans, when we were enslaved in our sins, there's a but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This is what he has done for us. Jesus came to set us free so that we could choose the right tree. Isn't that incredible? That, that, that the one who set the, trust, the test of the tree doesn't just say you get to try again. He says, I am unshackling you from the wrong tree and I'm going to now provide the way so that you can go to the right one. That you can take part in his own life. And so our invitation is simply to turn around and to watch his presence bring home to us regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in today. 
Now, there's an important word in the Bible that's attached to all of this. It's the word repentance. In Greek, it often means to literally turn away or to turn around from something. In Hebrew, the most often used word for repent uh, has a better translation, which literally means to return home. I just love the, the word picture that that gives, right? I mean, think of home for you. Return home. Just go home. I don't know if you're a big fan of cheesy church signs. I think they're kind of funny when we wish they'd take them down. Uh, but one time when uh, I was living in Kansas City for a year doing an internship, and there was a church, and it was around Christmas time. And on, on the billboard, all it said was, go home. I was like, that's really cool. Like, I, like, like that's me, right? Like, go home. It doesn't matter what's, what's happened. It doesn't matter where you've been. Go home. Just go home. You can go home. But the ancient imagination for the Hebrews, home was not a football stadium. It was not mom and dad's home. It wasn't even the holy city of Jerusalem, which was kind of a big deal for them. It was the divine ideal of intimacy with the creator God in the midst of the garden, operating in our created purpose glorifying him and enjoying him forever. That's home. The home's the garden, but not the garden that we left. It's the garden to come, the garden, the city. So what stops you from returning home? What causes you to hide? Do you believe that you're just too broken, too messed up, too impatient, too violent, too tempted, too riddled by the demons of your past, or that the, the current things you struggle with are just too trivial to bring to God. Because here's the thing, the same God who hovered, over, who hovered over the waters before anything was in the cosmos is the same God who breathed his own life into humanity is the same God who pursued Adam and Eve in the midst of the rebellion, even when they tried to hide themselves from him in their shame. Is the same God who took our guilt and our shame on the cross. It is the same God who is pursuing you even right now, tonight. He isn't waiting for you to come back to him. There's no need to hide or to cover yourself. He is bringing home to you. And see, we are set free to choose God's way over ours, the way of life. And so our invitation is to repent, to return home, to get out of the thorny bushes that we've been terribly trying to hide ourselves in. Because the life-altering truth is this, that he is so good that when you encounter his loving embrace, you'll realize how silly you were to want to hide from him in the first place. I'm not just preaching that. Like, that's personal experience. Now, here's the thing. The reality is that Christians don't have an image, don't project a great image of repentance all the time, right? You don't, I do. Church through the centuries has it. See, the reality is Christians were never meant to be known for either being perfect or looking like it. Instead, imagine if we restored image bearers simply lived as those who have found their true home. And from that, we are transformed in our thoughts, our desires, our actions. Everything about us is transformed because we have found our home in Jesus. 
And because of that, we don't hide from our sin. We don't hide and cover it up. We don't hide the brokenness that, that still exists. But we seek to turn away from those realities so that we can carry the experience. We can continue to experience the presence of the one who will never abandon us. What an opportunity we're given. I want to invite the band to come on up. And if you're like me, you can think of ways big or small that this, that this has played out in your story. Ways that you've desired to hide. And if that's you, I would love to just pray with you and over you right now. And if that's where you're at right now, I would invite you to just enter into a posture of just openness before God. Maybe by just simply putting your hands in front of you in a posture of just openness before him. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room. These image bears. Fractured. Imperfect, fallible, but image bearers nonetheless. Every single one of us stewarding your breath of life, stewarding the life that you gifted us with. And so Lord, I pray that, that you would meet us right now because we know you will. Asking you, that by the power of the presence of your Holy Spirit dwelling within each of us who, who know you and follow you, who trust you, that you, that you would just meet us in the midst of whatever we've been trying to hide, whoever we've been hiding from, whatever we've been hiding from others, whatever we've been hiding from you. And we bring that to the table, not so that we can be better, but so that we can be nearer. Lord, forgive us because we don't know how desperately we need you. Help us to uncover that need in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.